We are continuing our summer series on the Psalms, which we called the Psalms that shape us. And as part of this, we asked members of the congregation about a month ago to submit Psalms that were meaningful to them, um, and whether they would be open to sharing the stories of why they were meaningful to them. So a lot of you submitted Psalms, and we're gonna be weaving those stories into our sermons throughout the summer in different ways. We heard a bit of Elena's story, yes, or not yesterday, last week, and we're going to hear a bit of Nicole's story this week, and we're going to continue hearing from different voices in our congregation in different ways throughout this series. So Nicole is going to share about Psalm 103, which is our psalm for today in just a moment, uh, but I wanted to pray for her before she did. Thank you, Lord, for Nicole. Thank you for, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for your psalm book. Thank you for these prayers you've given us when we don't know how to pray. And I pray for your spirit to speak to us through Nicole. Would you bless her, Lord? Amen. Marital beaming. <laughs> and I just need you to know he's not here. So if I make eye contact with you, if you would just beam with unbridled joy and pride, that would just really be great. Thank you. So... I grew up in a Southern Baptist home, which for me meant that my Sunday mornings were filled with potlucks and choreography. We danced to songs about fountains and shooting artillery and these little lights that Satan wants to In the specific churches I attended, the Sunday school curriculum and the head pastor sermons all used individual verses as their foundation which me meant that I never actually opened the Bible that I brought with me every single Sunday. Still, I knew I believed in Jesus by the age of seven, uh, yet it was really in middle school that my spiritual formation took off. See, those were the years that I read the first four books of the Left Behind series. <laughs> my childlike faith in the trustworthiness of people often got me into trouble. Of course these books are worth reading. I bought them at Lifeway. My boyfriend would never put his personal agenda over protecting me. Maybe I can reconnect with my faith by learning about its historical roots. I know, I'll take this Rise of Christianity class at UT Austin. It turns out that when you combine a God obsessed with punishment with a class that teaches you all about the discrepancies of scripture, you'll find yourself saying, Mom, I'm not sure I believe in Jesus anymore. I ultimately didn't stop believing, but um, I did spend my 20s scared to death to read my Bible. So eventually, I did what any rational person in my situation would do. I went to seminary. The coursework I took was designed for ministers in training and future scholars who loved scripture and used big words like superlapsarian, and they could quote all their favorite theologians. I had read maybe 10 to 20% of the Bible. I thought the mercy seat was a chair. And the deepest Christian thinker I could quote was Bob the Tomato. So going to class was like drinking out of a fire hydrant, but I stuck with it because I really wanted to learn how to read the Bible and how to trust it the way that my professors did. This goal influenced the way that I approached my classes. For instance, in the few classes where we um, got to, had options for what we could submit for assignment credit, I would intentionally choose to memorize the passages of scripture provided by my professors. Psalm 103 was the first psalm I ever memorized in one of these courses. 
As I read this psalm, I found a familiar description of humanity. We forget and mess up. We suffer from oppression and distress. We experience disease and death. Yet I kept finding a God who was so different than the God I thought I knew. As I read each line of the psalm over and over, the punishment-obsessed God of my past was slowly replaced by a tender God who intimately knows us and our weaknesses and yet responds with this abundant provision given out of his faithful love. Psalm 103 became an anchor for me. In another class, I had a professor who said, look at Exodus 34. Of all the attributes we have to describe God like holy and righteous and sovereign, this is how God chose to describe himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When I heard these words, I had the entirety of Psalm 103 echo in my head. When I learned in every single Bible class that I took about how God faithfully loved and provided for his people in spite of their countless missteps, there was Psalm 103 again saying, yes, God is a compassionate father who does not deal with us according to our sins. When I took my eschatology class and I had to read Revelation for the very first time, I could approach those left-behind fears with the reminders that God is slow to anger and that his steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. And even today, five years out from my seminary degree, when I start to have those creeping doubts of, is any of this even real? Or is this the mistake that's going to cause God to unleash his wrath on me or just leave me altogether? I think back to this psalm, and I trust again that God is who he says he is. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Russell Vick. I'm the curate here at Incarnation, and thank you for sharing. When I first heard Nicole's story, one of the things that stood out to me was her desire to know who God really is and not be satisfied by any trite or easy answers, but to genuinely and wholeheartedly see if the gospel is true and if it holds up. And I think there are a lot of people who are asking the same questions that Nicole was asking. Is God really good? Is Jesus really worth following? Can I really trust the gospel story as it is presented in scripture? There's an old pastor named A.W. Tozer who once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And Tozer understood the significance of the questions that Nicole was asking. And he understood that our answers to those questions affects everything. And I really appreciated Nicole's honesty when she talked about her fear of opening the Bible. Because investigating your own personal presuppositions and beliefs is hard and terrifying work. And that has deep implications for your life. But like Jacob, who wrestled with God and refused to let him go. Nicole's desire to know God was characterized by grappling and deep questioning and the pursuit of truth. And like Jacob, this led to deep blessing. 
And so before I continue, I just want to say that if there are any of you here asking these sorts of questions, I first commend your bravery. And I want to encourage you not to give up. Keep wrestling. Keep asking questions. Keep pursuing truth. Because even though this work is difficult, it is deeply, deeply holy. It is holy work. And the Lord moves in the lives of people who do this work, who genuinely seek after him, and who will not be satisfied by anything less than truth. And I guarantee, I guarantee that it will lead to blessing. And it is this kind of blessing which inspired the psalmist to write Psalm 103. Notice the first five verses of this psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all your sins and heals all your infirmities. He redeems your life from the grave and crowns you with mercy and loving kindness. He satisfies you with good things, and your youth is renewed like an eagle's. So right from the beginning, the psalmist immediately turns inward and speaks to his soul, just as if he is speaking to another person. And the tone is bold and strong, like a general commanding a recruit in a boot camp. The psalm begins with an exhortation that is clearly intended to strike at the heart, his own heart. But he doesn't just blindly command his soul to worship God. He makes a list of reasons to his soul why he should do so. And he does it in actually a really cool poetic way. In Hebrew, the word for soul is nefesh, which is feminine in grammatical form. And all the pronouns in these first five verses are in the feminine tense. So every time you see the word your in the psalm, the pronoun is referring to the author's soul. He's not referring to the reader, as I've often read it when I've read it in English. He's referring to himself, particularly his soul. So it's as if he's saying, the Lord has forgiven your sins, O my soul. The Lord heals all your sicknesses, O my soul. The Lord brought you from a state of death and crowned you with his covenantal love, O my soul. The Lord has given you every good and perfect gift which you possess, Oh, my soul. As far as we know, this psalm was written by King David, who was one of the primary characters God used in Israel's history and in his plan for redemption. And there is no indication of what David was going through when he first wrote this psalm. But given the strength of his language and the tone within this personal, internal dialogue, David, David clearly intended this psalm to be a means by which he remembered the goodness of God in his own life. And so in writing this psalm, David is poetically and worshipfully, worshipfully addressing the question that Nicole was asking, and which I believe is deeply embedded within every one of us as human beings. Is God really good? And is he really worth following? And as we see in Psalm 103, David's answer to that question is a firm and strong yes. But at the same time, 
the text gives us the sense that David needed to constantly remind himself of this answer. I can imagine David writing this psalm and reciting this psalm in any season of his life. Whether it was a season of joy, he could, he could pray this psalm as a song of deep praise. Or whether he, he was in a season of spiritual dryness and deep despair, he could pray this psalm to remind himself of the Lord's faithfulness in his covenantal love. This is a psalm for every day. And I can imagine David speaking to himself, my soul, whatever happens, you can trust that the Lord is good because of all the things that he has done for you. But David doesn't just stay focused on his own particular story. He also focuses on God's actions in history toward his people. So the psalm continues, The Lord executes righteousness and judgment for all who are oppressed. He made his ways known to Moses and his works to the children of Israel. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and of great kindness. He will not always accuse us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our wickedness. For David, God is not merely an abstract being who brings spiritual blessings to his own soul, but he is a God who has revealed himself to a particular people in a particular place and in a particular time. He is a holy God, a God of justice, whose eye is on those who are oppressed and suffer under the effects of a sinful world. He is the God of Israel, the God of liberation, who brought freedom to a people so that they may be a kingdom of priests and a blessing to the whole world. He is the God who revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, giving him the law that Israel may know him. He is the God who had intervened in human history and who proclaims himself to be the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, a God of both justice and a God of love, a holy God who is making the world right again, a God before whom no human can stand. But at the same time, as David highlights, the God of forgiveness who invites humanity to come and know him. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our wickedness. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so is his mercy great upon those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed his transgressions from us. As a father cares for his children, so does the Lord care for those who fear him. For he himself knows whereof we are made. He remembers that we are but dust. My old bishop in New England 
had this saying, which I think really captures what the psalmist is communicating here. During an early part of his ministry, he and a team of lay ministers went out to do outreach somewhere in Europe. I think it was Norway. And the group of people whom they were ministering to were primarily people you would never see in a church. If I remember correctly, he described them as goths, emos, bikers, you know, people wear really dark clothing, dark heavy makeup, people who would not feel comfortable coming to a church on a Sunday. And during a period of prayer ministry, the team got a word which they prayed over every person that was there. And they prayed this as people came up for prayer. There is nothing you can do to make God love you anymore, and there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. His love for you is perfect and complete, just as it is right now. Oftentimes, God's love can be characterized in a way that perpetuates an unnecessary sense of shame. You hear something like God loves you despite your sin, as if God's love is distanced from the messiness of being human. And God's love becomes a way to focus on our shortcomings and perpetuate guilt and shame. But that is not how David portrays God's love. For David, the love of God is expressed by his gracious movement towards humanity. David sees God's love as being expressed toward him in the personal messiness and limitations of being human. To be human is to be someone who was made to be loved by God. And we see that as David continues the psalm. Our days are like grass. We flourish like a flower of the field. When the wind goes over, it is gone, and its place shall know it no more. But the merciful goodness of the Lord endures forever on those who fear him, and his righteousness on children's children, on those who keep his covenant and remember his commandments and do them. David sees God's love as perfect and infinite, which is expressed toward humans who are finite and imperfect. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more, and there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. His love for you is perfect and complete, just the way it is right now. And so David concludes the psalm, rejoicing in the truth of who God is, and of his mercy towards him. The Lord has set his throne in heaven, and his kingship has dominion over all. Bless the Lord, you angels of his, you mighty ones who do his bidding, and hearken to the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his who do his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And so notice again that David exhorts his soul to bless the Lord. But he does it within the community of all creation. And just like our liturgy says, he joins his voice with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven to proclaim the glory of God's name. This is the blessing for which every single one of us was made, to be invited and participate in the life which God offers, the life which is intended for all creation a life that is true, a life that is good, a life that is beautiful. This is the blessing 
that is the fruit of all our questioning, wrestling, and pursuit of truth. This is the blessing of Psalm 103, and this is the blessing of the gospel. Amen.